if you will, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're going to cover um, a big chunk of text. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 42, but we're actually just going to look at one, one uh, key idea out of this text that I think uh, is super important for us as a church. Now, what we have been doing as we've been studying through the book of Acts is that we've been taking a look at what the early church functioned like. Uh, what does it mean uh, to be a spirit-filled community? How do we return to what I like to call the apostolic faith, uh, that, that period in which the vibrancy of the gospel uh, and the seriousness of witness to Jesus was so central uh, that it literally turned the known world upside down on its head? And what can we learn from it today uh, how have we lost our way in regards to apostolic faith, and how can we return to it? And those are the kinds of questions that we are considering as we study through the book of Acts. Now, just context, if you remember, uh, in the, at the end of chapter 4, you see the apostles, after um, already being uh, entering into conflict with the religious leaders of Jerusalem around the preaching of Jesus uh, and the warnings to no longer teach in his name, uh, when they are released from being questioned, they go back uh, to the house church uh, and they tell everyone what happened. And the church, the early church, at which at that point was thousands of believers, began to pray uh, that God would give them specifically boldness to continue to be the witnesses that God has called them to be, to proclaim the gospel, and that God, through their witness, would bring forth signs and wonders and miracles to attest to the authenticity of who Jesus is. And then what we see following that up is that's exactly what God does. Uh, there's, there is a movement of the Spirit. There is powerful witness. In fact, it says that there are many signs and wonders done by the hands of the apostles uh, to bring authentication to the truth of what, the, what it was that they were proclaiming. And now uh, they are about to become, uh, come into serious conflict once again. Uh, and we're going to learn a, a really amazing lesson out of this text. So chapter 5, verse 17, it says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. Uh, they were jealous of the authority and, uh, that the apostles had and the favor uh, that these Christians, which they didn't even have a name yet, uh, this new sect had with the people. And it says they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said. Now, here is a miraculous event. God sends a divine messenger, the angel of the Lord, uh, who actually delivers them out of jail. Now, you'd be thinking, this is exactly how God is. He always delivers us from trials and tribulations. He's a God who rescues uh, at least that's what you want to think theologically. But that generally isn't the way that it works. God reveals that he's with those who follow him, who surrender to him, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But he never promises uh, to get us out of difficulty. In fact, Jesus himself said to his disciples, uh, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And I was looking at this, and as, as a follower of Christ, if I was delivered from uh, jail miraculously, what I would hope that the angel of the Lord would tell me is to go home. You've done a good job. Go home, get some rest. But no, the angel of the Lord does the most counterintuitive thing possible and says, 
go and stand in the temple. Wait, we just were arrested in the temple. Uh, and speak to the people all the words of this life. This life. There's, there's, no, there's no name for Christianity yet. Go speak what it is that has happened within you, that is happening through you, in regards to the work of Jesus Christ that is continuing to this day by the power of his Spirit. Go speak of this, all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. What do we have there? We have the theme of what we're going to be looking at today. They did something totally counterintuitive. Um, but so necessary to experiencing all that God would have for us in regards to the gospel. They were obedient. So obedience is what we're going to be considering today. And look what happens. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. That would be extremely stressful for those guards. Uh, now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. These Christians had so much favor with the masses in Jerusalem that they they were afraid to actually bring them by force. This, this miraculous escape had happened. They're back right where they were before when they were arrested, doing the same thing, preaching in the same name. And now they're being brought before the council once again. And it says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Notice the threat. That's why I always say that when we talk about our faith, it's important that we're God-specific. A lot of people believe in God, but we believe that power rests in the name of Jesus, that there is no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved, that there is the reason that it is uncomfortable to talk about Jesus is because there is power in his name. It, it stirs something specific. It brings it brings the gospel into focus. And I think this is a really unique thing. They were most bothered that they were preaching and declaring and doing these things in the name of Jesus. And it's, look what they go on to say. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered. Now here, once again, let me point out that if I was in their particular position um, and I had just got out of jail and was now looking at the potential threat of being put to death for my faith in Jesus, I would be wanting to work in what I call the, um, in the dialectical, that is speaking truth without getting myself in trouble. Uh, so what is that called in 1984? Double speak, double truth. Uh, I would tread lightly is all I'm saying. But once again, Peter, what does he, what does he and the apostles answer? We must Obey God rather than men. There's this incredible uh, boldness in their proclamation. And notice the emphasis is upon obedience to God. He has called them. He has empowered them to be witnesses to the reality of who Jesus is. And they will not stop for anyone. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus. I just feel like, man, did he have to say this then? Whom you killed. <laughs> By, there's, there's a lack of political correctness in that particular statement. Hanging him on a tree, which literally these were the very men who did have Jesus crucified, and Peter was witness to that. God exalted him at the, as his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. This is the line we're going to spend our time really thinking about. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who what? Obey him. Obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up. In the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fall. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. There's, there's some truth in that, but there's also some problems in that statement as well. Uh, you might even be found opposing God, and that is definitely true. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Uh, John Stott believes that that was actually the um, 40 lashes minus one, uh, which would have left them near death. Uh, Their backs would have been lacerated. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Once again, kind of counterintuitive response to a beating. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I do not believe that they were masochists. I believe that their commitment to Jesus led them uh, to celebrate the fact that they were counted worthy to be a part of his people. And every day in the temple and from house to house uh, did this deter them on any level. They did not cease teaching and preaching that in Christ Jesus, that preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It's an incredible passage. And this passage, I believe, gives us something that is so important that I want us to be thinking about today, and that is the necessity of obedience. In verse 32, it says, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given to those who obey him. And I think that it is important for us to remember that discipleship is not a question of readiness, It is a question of willingness. And this tells us a lot about how we define obedience. Here's the problem that we face as Christians who believe in the gospel. What we say about the gospel is that religion says, live like this and God will accept you. And what we like to proclaim in this age where there has been a giant emphasis among evangelicals around the the essence of justification, a gospel-centric worldview, which says that at an incredible cost, to Jesus, God has accepted you. Uh, He has accepted you. He has spoken yes over your life through the death of his son. 
And there is nothing that you can add to that reality. And so what happens is that we begin to believe that the gospel of grace means that God does everything. Let go and let God tends to be the, the, the MO in which many Christians live by today. And yet they find that their Christianity falls terribly flat because there's something lacking in their witness, in their empowerment, and they can't figure out why. I've put my faith in Jesus. My faith is in Jesus. I accept what he did for me. I recognize that I am incapable of saving myself. I understand the gospel. But what we don't understand is that we downplay uh, our responsibility in regards to working out that salvation, which is a gift from God. There is no doubt that salvation from start to finish is, uh, comes from Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. There's no doubt that that is, that is a, a fundamental of Christian faith. However, that doesn't mean that we have nothing to do because the gospel is a gospel of liberation. And the way that I've liked to define this in the past uh, in understanding what is our responsibility and what does practical or simple gospel obedience actually look like, I think it's important that we consider the concept of, of grace as a gift. And I've used this illustration before, but I think it's worth repeating because I think we forget so quickly. And that is this, that when we think of a gift, that is something that is freely given. I have a present. I want to present it to you. Uh, It's not a gift if I make you pay for it. I bought a gift. And in order for you to truly experience the gift, you have to be willing to receive it, open it, and utilize it for yourself. It's what a gift exchange is all about, right? But that's not the only definition of gift in the dictionary. A gift is also a talent that one is born with. And I think that this is an interesting concept in regards to a Christian understanding of what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because a talent that one is born with, you think about an Olympic athlete, one who is able to compete against the greatest athletes in the world. They're not just disciplined. It's not like they just worked really hard and became the best in the world. An Olympic marathon runner is running miles, all of it, under, I think it's like around under four minutes for all. I ran a mile recently, sprinted, and stinking rocked eight minutes. <laughs> and then I was like, I have friends in this church that run eight-minute marathons, uh, miles. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I don't care if I train seven days a week and run for four hours a day. I'm never going to run a marathon that fast because I'm not born with that innate talent. I'm not, I don't have that gifting. And there are some, there is, there's a, a, a reality around that very concept that plays out in Christianity is that the gospel sets us free and that freedom then becomes a responsibility not to do what we want, but to do what is right. And what is right, and if we want to grow in our intimacy with Christ, if we want to move from immaturity to maturity, if we want to become the disciples that God has called us to be, there needs to be a willingness to begin to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's the very command of Paul in Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. As D.L. Moody called it, he said, salvation is like a gold mine. We must dig it out. And I think that what you see happening in the early church is that they understood that faith in Christ meant a life lived in obedience to him. But now the question arises, well, what then actually is obedience? Because 
for many of you, that's the, that, that is really where the rub comes in. What does that mean? Does that mean that I, is, do you give me a list of things that I shouldn't do? And then you give me a list of things that I should do. And you want, I know deep down, you really would like me to be extremely prescriptive with you. But I would argue that the most general definition of obedience is found in Jesus' own words in John chapter 6, verse 29, when he said, what must we do to do the work of God? What can we do to be pleasing to God? And he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, if you want to get a right definition of obedience, all you need is a right definition of sin because obedience is the opposite of sin. Sin is a rebellion against God's rule in your life. If you define sin as the little things that you do wrong every day, you have missed the mark. That's not what sin is. Sin actually is missing the mark. There's a mark. There's a center. It's an archery term. It's a Latin word for archery that means to miss the mark. Anything off the bullseye is missing the mark. Therefore, sin is something that you do the moment you open your... Breathing causes us to sin practically. I mean, this is the reality. We often, the default setting of, the, of human existence is to take our own lives into our own hands and be our own gods. That's the essence of sin. Obedience then is the antithesis of that. It's total yieldedness to the Lord's leading. So if you're asking me, well, what does it mean to be obedient? I would say, what is it in your life that is keeping you from growing in intimacy with Jesus Christ? And so for some of you, that may be sin pattern. Some of you may be struggling with pornography, and that's, that is something that is holding you down. And Jesus says, let go of it. Let me empower you to live differently. And that obedience is taking that step of faith into something that feels impossible. For others of you, it's actually it's, it's the sin of omission. It's the things that you're not doing. It's the fact that you don't get up and spend time with Jesus and make him a priority in your life. You don't read the word. You don't pray. You're not regular in your attendance. You don't give. There's, there's a self-centeredness in the way that you're existing. And Jesus is saying you've got to develop in the art of giving yourself away. Some of you, it's disobedience to your parents. Some of you, it's an unforgiving spirit. Some of you, it's anger. Obedience is addressing the things that the spirit leads you to as you yield to him on a daily basis. That's my point. When we give ourselves to Christ and say, Lord, not my will be done, but thy will be done, and we really mean it, and then we step out in faith, he will begin to show us the areas that need to change in our lives. And obedience is the willingness to take the risk involved in that. Now, here is what's powerful about this passage. Because what we forget is that many Christians struggle with this idea, like, I don't feel close to Jesus, like, I don't feel, I'm not feeling his presence. And it's so fascinating is that the obedience component is often missing from that conversation, because Jesus himself said, uh, and this has nothing to do with being saved by grace, this has to do with working out that grace that has been given to you. Jesus himself said in his upper room discourse in John 14, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and here's the, here's the key, and I will manifest myself to them. That's such a powerful proclamation. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, I will love you, and I will manifest myself to you. Intimacy with Christ is something that in, increases by, by varying degrees as we yield our lives to him. Our obedience to him is coming before Jesus, not perfect. He's not looking for readiness. He's looking for willingness. 
He's not looking for perfection. He says, therefore, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perf- that word perfect in the, in the Jewish concept speaks of single-mindedness, yieldedness. What Jesus wants from you is not this or that thing, this or that problem, this or that issue. He wants the whole you, all of you, which includes the really crummy parts of you, as well as the good parts of you. The key is, is he king and Lord over every arena of your life? And that's much more challenging than it sounds, isn't it? Well, let's look at some facets that I think help fill out the concept of obedience from this text. Because I am blown away by the boldness and the courage and the clear communication of the gospel found in the apostles in this particular text. More blown away by that than the miraculous event of being released from jail, because for me, they were released from jail just to be sent back to the wolves. They were maybe safer in jail. So this is a fascinating text. It shows us that Jesus isn't here to keep us safe. He's here to lead us into the truth, and the truth will set us free. And sometimes that truth comes with tremendous amounts of pain, and we just need to understand that. Let's be honest about the gospel. So the first component of obedience is this. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, what does this tell us about obedience? This tells us, gives us one facet of gospel obedience, and it's, it's a facet that I would call compulsion. Uh, compulsion is different than impulsive. But compulsion is that intuitive sense inside us that tells us not what we want to do or even what we think is wise to do, but what we must do. I've drawn that from this incredible book on discipleship I'm reading right now uh, by this Catholic writer named uh, Ronald Rollheiser uh, in a book called, uh, called Sacred Fire. It's a book on what he calls mature discipleship. And what he talks about is that compulsion is that, is that drive within us that pushes us, uh, that drive within us by the Holy Spirit to push us into the truth where there's something within us where I cannot stop until it comes out. I cannot rest until I make Jesus known. And obedience leads to that reality of compulsion. And I can give you an example of this uh, out of my own life. When Darcy and I came to the conclusion that I needed to start Door of Hope, it was, it was fascinating. We worked, I worked at a good church, a healthy church on the west side, but we were feeling increasingly restless. Uh, we weren't first personally feeling called uh, to the area that the church is in. Darcy and I met here in, in inner southeast Portland. This is, this is where, where we came together. It's where she lived when I met her back in the mid-90s. We've just always had a heart for, uh, for Portland, even though it's changing so fast. It's hard to keep your head around all the changes. Uh, but there was this, a pull to this area, but there was nothing that made sense about it. People told me, you do not have what it takes. People that I respect and love told me, you do not have what it takes to start a church. And you know what? They're probably right and possibly still right. Uh, and, I, and I had people like, don't do it. And it, you, we didn't have any financial uh, support. All I had was a, was, um, a several month severance pay. And there were a few people that said, hey, I want to give to this. But nobody was saying, I'm just going to, I'm going to carry this thing financially to see if it flows. All I knew is that I had, I think I had four months or five months severance and we're like, 
If it doesn't pick up by then, then I don't know. I guess I'll paint houses again. But there was nothing rational. We had two small children. Uh, Henry was entering into second grade. Hattie was only three years old. Uh, we didn't even, when we, before we even uh, uh, knew exactly where the church, we didn't have a location for the church. We just said we were going to start it. And I started to tell some people that came to my morning study that lived in the city, like, I'm going to do this thing. Uh, and I didn't even know who would show up the first night. The, we found the church by just going on a walk. First, we found a house. We should, like, we should actually move into the inner east side. We moved to inner northeast Portland from southwest Portland because our heart was to um, get something going over on this side. And I remember even talking with Rick McKinley, and he said something really fascinating to me. He's like, uh, he's the pastor of Imago Day because there were enough people that were telling me that I shouldn't do it that I was like, and they were like, you know, 19 out of every 20 church plants fail within the first two years. I'm like, thank you that encouragement. <laughs> um, and, and then Rick said to me something really interesting. He said, listen, he goes, I would never be comfortable telling a man that he wasn't called to start a church. He goes, but you do need to accept that God may have called you to start a church for the purpose of failing. Uh, and I was like, well, that's not very helpful. <laughs> um, but then he, he pointed out, and I realized, I just had this moment of, of clarity. I'm like, well, if it fails, can I come work for you? And he goes, sure. And I'm like, all right, I have nothing to lose then. Uh, so there was, this, there was this, this sense of like, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense on paper. There was no rhyme or reason other than Darcy and I both together. I think this is important if anyone's out there that's wanting to do church planning. Probably your spouse should be on board with um, such an endeavor uh, or any kind of adventure into the faith. Like you don't want to say, I'm called to go to the mission field. And your spouse is like, I am not. Uh, Darcy and I together felt that this adventure was a risk worth taking. It was compulsion. It was a movement within, inside that actually transcended uh, what I would call what I want to do. It transcended even the wisdom of maybe what I should do. It came to, I have to actually do this thing, no matter what. And I stepped out and did it. And God has blessed it. And honestly, even if it had failed, I still would be convinced that God had called me to do it. That's how, how intense the drive was within me. And I often feel that same level of compulsion when I'm preaching, when there's something difficult to be said, there's something in me that it's like, I'll even have moments where the spirit is so in control where I'm like, I, don't, I actually don't want to be saying this right now, and it's coming out of my mouth anyway. And there's, that's that interior uh, release of the spirit's total control over our personhood. And I think that what's powerful about obedience here is they had to step out. They had to show up at the temple. God didn't make them go to the temple. They went to the temple, and God empowered them as they went. If you look at the patterns of God's movement throughout church history, he calls people to place their faith in him. He says, you want to part the, you want to, uh, part the Red Sea, put the staff into the water. There's movement in, um, faith in that reality before God makes it so. It's not let go and let go God. It's let go of your own control and cling to God with everything that's in you. That's what obedience looks like. And that compulsion is the outcome of yieldedness to him, of a willingness to say yes when it doesn't even make sense. Um, I, think, I, I think that this is, uh, and, and I want to just be careful because people are like, yes, my parents are paying for my college education, and I want to be a woodcrafter in Portland. Like, I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about specifically a, a yieldedness 
to how is it that Jesus Christ is going to be manifested in witness through your life. And that may mean a career change. That may mean a change of direction. But I think it's directly connected to, is Jesus really Lord? I'm not, not talking about you just now taking a risk to fulfill your own personal fantasies. I'm talking about how is it that my life is given over to the sole purpose of making Jesus known? And that doesn't mean professional ministry. That just means how does your life reflect your love for Jesus on a daily basis? How are you yielded in whatever occupation you have? That's important. God does seem to, at times, move us when it doesn't make sense. He has moved, Darcy and I. We've moved 23 times since we've been married. That's a lot of times. Uh, And yet, I've been at one church for eight years. You know, one of the things, the, the compulsion is to continue to press in even when it's felt difficult uh, to continue to be a pastor. That interior where there's times where I'm like, it doesn't make sense for me to do this. It's too hard. I don't want to do this anymore. But there's something inside that says, I have called you to this. And so wisdom and even desire gets put aside for the purpose of obedience. And I, I, I want to share with you a quote from C.S. Lewis out of Surprised by Joy in regards to this. The hardness of God is greater than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation beautiful, so powerful. Um, if I could read to you a verse um, that actually speaks to this kind of compulsion, I would, I would share with you the verse from Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 9.16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity, there's that compulsion, necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I want us to be a people that cannot rest until it comes out. We, that we are so under the Spirit's leading and guidance and control that, and so, so surrendered to King Jesus that we cannot rest until we make him known in and through our lives. How beautiful is this passage before us. The second facet of obedience is found in verse 29. When they are brought before the council... Notice the response. It says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And then they go on to preach the gospel to remind these men that you are the ones who actually put Jesus to death, but God has utilized that death to bring about his salvation plan for the world, to bring about repentance and forgiveness of the sins for Israel. And he's preaching directly the gospel to the very men that want him dead. And he says, we have to obey God rather than men. And what I see is a second facet of of obedience is conviction. That is belief that leads to actual response. Uh, Joshua Abraham Heschel, uh, one of my favorite uh, Jewish writers of the 20th century, beautiful writer, uh, he calls it a leap of action. In the Jewish mind, faith is not intellectual assent or even, even a heart that's overwhelmed by truth, but faith is something that leads to a life that changes, transformation, through obedience. Uh, and I think that that whole concept of a leap of action is really helpful. Uh, this is, this is a, a really helpful verse, I think, that actually speaks to this strange paradox. John chapter 3, verse 36, and it gives us, uh, it gives us a insight into Jesus' own understanding of belief. Remember, the demons believed that Jesus was the Son of God that didn't make them saved. So clearly, belief means something more than just, I believe that he is who he said he is. And Jesus, uh, in, excuse me, the, the writer of the Gospel of John says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Verse 36 of chapter 3, and he says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Isn't that interesting? Whoever believes shall have eternal life. Whoever does not obey shall not see life. This clearly shows that trust in Christ, that whole concept of trust in obey, is two sides of the same coin. On one side, we receive the gift. On the other side, we work it out. On one side, I accept all that Jesus has for me. And on the other side, I step out in faith and, and begin to move in the belief that he will empower me to do whatever it is that he has called me to do. And I think that it's interesting that it, it says that the evidence, we're not saved by our works, but we are saved unto works. And I think that that is an important distinction that the radical transformation that comes into the life of the gospel should lead to a transformation of how it is that we actually live. And if it doesn't, we're playing with fire. We're potentially fooling ourselves. And I think that this is important for us to consider. Conviction is what is the mark of these. Obedience leads to a deep abiding conviction. The conviction becomes like a compass that guides their, their movements, their steps, their words. They are standing with this calm confidence before those who have the power to actually kill them and imprison them. And yet there is no fear of man because their fear of the Lord, their fear of God is actually the root of their righteousness. They have a fear of offending the God who loves them so much. And this brings me to the final The final facet of obedience found in verses 40 and 41. And we'll close here. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for their name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching or preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Now, we would say that that conviction has led, has led to, and maybe you would say the third facet of obedience is boldness, but that's not what I would say it is. In fact, I would argue that the third facet based upon the text before us is actually the key facet that often is misunderstood uh, by Christians today. And I would argue that the third facet, and maybe you don't see it in the text, but I'll explain it, is that of compassion. Compassion is the ability to love indiscriminately. I think this is important for us to keep in mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That Jesus looked on the crowds and he had compassion on them. He loved them indiscriminately. He loved them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus had nails driven into his hands and feet, his words were words of compassion. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When he was asked by the young rich ruler, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the young rich ruler gave him a list of all the ways that he thought he was being obedient. The problem was that he actually wasn't yielded or submitted. And Jesus says that he looked at him and loved him. Compassion. It's not, it's not devoid of truth, but it's the ability to love people toward the truth. It's the ability to see the world with the eyes of Jesus. How is it that these 
followers of Christ were able to endure the suffering, the beating, the imprisonment? How is it that Paul is able to go go across the known world in all his travels, being stoned and left for dead, being whipped and beaten, going hungry, and yet nothing could stop him from presenting the gospel because he said all he wanted to do was to bring the knowledge of the love of Christ to the lost world. That the understanding that it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And what I see here in these final, um, this final passage of our text is not just simply that obedience means courage, is that courage is the outcome of love. A heart that loves indiscriminately. These disciples were not experiencing the beating of the scribes and Pharisees as saying, well, we're going to be obedient to God, but you know, you'll get yours eventually. They allowed themselves to be beaten and to be imprisoned because they were there to share the love of Christ with the very enemies that were there to kill them. And I think that this is important because the motivator for obedience, the only thing that truly ever motivates Christians toward living differently toward actually being willing to allow God to examine how it is that you spend your days and your nights, what it is that you spend your time thinking about, what it is that you spend your your money on, what it is that you spend your energy doing, how it is that you live amongst other people. If you are not motivated by the love of God, nothing will motivate you. Fear will not motivate us, will not sustain us. Perfect love casts out fear. I think this is important Because 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, and that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do we not understand that mature discipleship is the discipline of giving oneself away? But you'll never give yourself away if you don't first realize that God gave his son away for you. It says that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. The evidence that the love of Christ has captivated your heart is evidenced in how well you love the world around you. We don't even hardly talk about loving our enemies because it's hard enough for us as a community of faith just to love each other. And that's the first step of evangelism. And I think that this is the power of obedience as obedience is seen here is that their willingness to take the beatings To go out rejoicing isn't because they were stoked that they got beat, but they were stoked that they were being utilized by King Jesus to bring forth salvation to those who are hurting and broken. And I just ask you, do you have that ability to love indiscriminately? I'm not saying that uh, we give up our ethics, not saying that we give up our convictions. What I'm saying is, do people sense that we live by a certain way because the love of Christ has compelled us to do so, and is that love offered freely through our lives to those whom we come in contact with? Do we not believe that it is the kindness of God that invites people to repentance? Change of Why would anyone want to give up the life they're leading if they don't see the life of Christ in us? We don't want to talk about a Jesus who isn't here. We want to talk about all the words of life that we are ourselves experiencing. And so our obedience is wrapped up in compulsion, conviction, and compassion. I pray that we would be a people that recognize, as it states in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The power of the spirit is the spirit of truth who guides us into all truth. May we experience it. May we rest in the truth of it. And may we witness to King Jesus in everything we do. Amen.